Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Remember correctly, the, the, the phrasing was that the opposite of inequality is not equality, but rather community. And I thought, well, that's really nice. You know, it's a, it's a reframe. It's around trying to um, question the false dichotomies that we all use to limit our sense of what's possible in our lives. And giving voice to values, as I'm going to describe to you, is all about trying to challenge those false dichotomies as well. And then the second reason why I was particularly uh, pleased to be here um, is because what I'm going to describe to you, as Cecilia mentioned, is, is an approach that, that I developed for trying to develop ethical leadership for business education and for businesses. But it's actually grown well beyond that original um, motivation and goal. So giving voice to values, GVV, is, is yes, being used in business education all over the world. It's being used now in, in many major corporations all over the world. It's also being used in other areas. It's starting to be used in legal education, medical education, nursing. Um, uh, and actually, Australia has been one of the pioneers in bridging um, and expanding the use of giving voice to values. So in Australia, we've been to uh, many, many different schools that are now using GVV, but it also was one of the first places to use it in legal education in Canberra, and it was one of the first places to use it in medical education in Sydney and in Perth, and one of the first places to use it in nursing education. And in my last visit, I worked with the, the Palliative Care Nursing Association of Australia, and actually we've worked with the police force in Queensland, um, and we've done presentations for the public sector in Australia. So um, it, that's another reason why I'm particularly honored to share it with you, because I, want, I hope that sharing the story with you today, um, I'm inviting you to think about how this might be useful in your work with the many different nonprofits and NGOs that you all represent. Um, I so admire the work that you all do. I think it's some of the hardest work and some of the most important work. And if giving voice to values can be useful in any way, I will be thrilled. So with that as a, as a sort of preamble, I'm going to just tell you some stories about what GVV, what Giving Voice to Values is, why it was developed, why it works, and then I hope we'll have some, some conversation after that. Um, so in case you daze out at any point, um, you just had lunch. <laughs> I drank several cups of coffee, but I don't know about you. <laughs> so I want to tell you what the bottom line is right now. So if you don't remember anything else that I say today, Please remember this. 
Giving voice to values is about asking and answering a different question, a new question when it comes to ethics and values in our organizations, in our work, and in our wider lives. So the usual question that we ask, the typical question is, what is the right thing to do in any particular situation? That's a hugely important question, right? But it's a question that I uh, venture to guess, given the worlds that you work in, that you actually have thought about a lot. But what giving voice to values is about is about asking a different question. It's about asking, once you know what's right, how can you get it done effectively? What do you need to say? To whom? In what sequence? And then what will the pushback be? We call those the reasons and rationalizations. And then what will you say? And what data do you need to gather? And how do you need to frame the situation that you're um, trying to address? And is this something that you're going to do on your own, one-on-one, -on -one, um, in a conversation? Or is this a systemic issue, which I imagine many of the issues you all deal with are, in which case it needs to be addressed systemically? And if so, how are you going to script that out? How are you going to action plan for that? So that's what giving voice to values is all about answering and, and, and trying to address. Um, but before, I, I want to step back and tell you why, why we developed Giving Voice to Values the way we did and why it works. Um, and so the story I like to tell, which is true, <laughs> which is a nice advantage, um, is that um, this all began from my own personal crisis of faith. Um, I, I had been working in the field of business education for several decades, 10 years at Harvard Business School where I helped develop their first required curriculum around values and, and business and education. Um, and then I worked uh, for six years at Babson College, which is uh, the number one school in the world for entrepreneurship. And I consulted to a lot of business schools and, and companies around the world. And uh, in the late 90s, around the turn of the last century, I had what I call a crisis of faith. I began to feel that maybe trying to teach about and train about ethics in business and in organizations, in schools and in companies and other organizations, maybe trying to teach about ethics was unethical. <laughs> you can tell from that that I'm sort of an earnest person. Um, but I really began to feel that you know maybe at, at best it was futile, and at worst it was hypocritical. And there were a lot of reasons why I had this crisis of faith. I'll mention just a few of them to you. I mean, uh, one of them was simply having worked in this field for several decades, it seemed that every few years there would be some spate of huge scandals that would hit the business press, right? So in the 70s, we had the uh, defense industry scandals. In the 80s, we had the insider trading scandals. Um, and you know, then we had the dot-com bubble in the 90s, and then you know, all hell broke loose. I mean, we had Enron and WorldCom and Parmalat and Galleon Group and the global financial crisis. And more recently, we've had Volkswagen and Wells Fargo and Equifax, et cetera, et cetera. And if you happen to be working in um, a leading business school, when these things would hit the press, as I was, there was a kind of predictable response. You know, so basically, there'd be a lot of op-eds in the, in the business press saying, you know, what the heck are they teaching in business schools? Because it was usually uh, executives who'd gone to the leading business schools around the world who were doing the perp walks on the front pages of the business press. Um, and you know, there would be uh, a, scurry, a flurry of activity in business schools where we would 
you know, we would interview the students, and we would interview the faculty, and we would review the curriculum, and we'd interview the recruiters, and we'd talk to alumni, and we'd try to understand what is it that we're teaching? What is the explicit curriculum, and what is the implicit or the invisible curriculum? And why are people walking out thinking that this is okay, that this is the way to run their organizations? And after doing this, we would, you know, create a new course, we would hire some new scholars, we might start a research center, and the press releases would go out, and then a few years later the whole cycle would start again. And, you know, I had lived through this a number of times, and it began to feel that we were basically just checking the boxes because things weren't changing. Um, so that was one reason for my crisis of faith. A second reason was around this time I got invited there's a, a, a scholar, uh, Kirk Hansen, he used to run the business ethics program for Stanford Business School. And then he moved on to run a program at Santa Clara University in California in the US. And it was a pro, the Markala Center for Professional Ethics. And around this time, Kirk decided he was gonna host a debate, a public debate. And he was gonna have two people on one side of the debate arguing that after 25 years of good faith effort, to try and address values and ethics in our organizations and in our business schools, that we'd made a huge amount of progress. And then he wanted two people on the other side of the debate to say we hadn't made any progress at all. And on that side, they had Milton Friedman's son, <laughs> who was also an economist. But they asked me to be on the side of the debate saying how much progress we'd made. So I sat down to write my remarks for this debate, and I had this sort of quandary. I thought, can, can, I lie, can I lie in an ethics debate? <laughs> you know, I was a little worried. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up creating some sort of nuanced statement that I felt I could say. And it was something like any of us who've been educators or trainers know that there are individuals that we've had an impact on, right? There are people whose lives we know we've impacted in a positive way. But if I were to talk about it more broadly, I actually couldn't say we'd made that much progress, if any. So that wasn't exactly what Kirk was hoping I'd say, but it was the best I could do. And that was kind of a watershed moment for me, because I thought, gee, I've been working on this stuff for several decades. Is that really the best I can do? But the major reason, the biggest reason for my crisis of faith is what I actually saw happening in classrooms and in organizations when I went in to talk about values and ethics, and it was this. Uh, typically, when we're going to talk about those issues, we would give people some, some thorny ethical dilemma, some case study to read before we walked into the room. So everybody would read the case, and then they'd come into the room, and they'd have an idea of what they thought the right thing to do was, right? But in the course of the conversation, two things would happen. The first thing that would happen is that the, the students or the, or the managers, whoever the group was, their thinking would become more complex. So they begin to think, you know, maybe I didn't have all the information. Maybe this is just kind of the way it's done in this company or in this industry or in this part of the world. Maybe it is wrong, but if, if I try and do something, <laughs> you know, I'm probably not going to make any progress and I may make it worse, at least for myself. So their thinking would become more complex. I actually think that's a good thing. You don't want people to walk into these situations naively. But the second thing that would happen was more troublesome to me. I don't know if you've had this experience, but typically when I'm in these kinds of group settings, 
there's usually one or two people that when they speak, everyone turns to listen to them. You know, they might be the most articulate, they might be the ones who always have a witty story to tell to illustrate their point of view. Back in the day when I was at Harvard Business School, they were usually the people who came from the industries that everybody else wanted to go to. So they would listen to them because they thought, oh, they've got the special sauce, right? But whatever it was, when those people spoke, the ones that everyone listened to when we were having these ethics discussions, they were usually the ones who would be saying, Mary, I know what you want me to say. But in the real world, it's just not possible to do it. So I thought, boy, people are walking out of these conversations more confused and less empowered. Because the people they listen to, the people they respect, are saying this is impossible. So, you know, that was, I thought, come on, you know, life is short. I want to do something that matters. This isn't making a difference. I want, I, I'm going to take a step back from this work. And I did. I stopped doing this work. And around that time, a couple things happened. And I'm going to tell you the stories because they led to the creation of Giving Voice to Values and sort of a change in my own mindset. So the first thing that happened is I got invited to do a consulting project at Columbia Business School. And while I was there, I was working on something else, there were a group of faculty, senior faculty in finance and economics and strategy and law, business law, who were still working on this ethics issue. And they knew about my past work at Harvard. So they said, can we show you what we're doing? So I said, sure. So this was their idea, not mine. And they had invited all of the incoming MBA students at Columbia. So at the time, this was a cohort of about 600. They had invited all of them upon matriculation during orientation to answer one question and just to write a little paragraph. They never put their names on it. This was the question. Tell us about a time in your work experience so far when you were explicitly told or implicitly pressured to do something that conflicted with your own values and how you handled it. So they wrote all these little you know, one-page essays. So these faculty who collected these stories came to me and they said, well, we asked them to do it and they did it and now we're not sure what to do with them. <laughs> but they're really interesting. Would you like to read them? So I said, sure. So I read hundreds and hundreds of these, well over a thousand over several years. And they were really interesting. So let me tell you what we learned. So the first thing we learned is if you think about the kind of people who get an MBA at a school like Columbia, at least back then, they, you know, they, they tended to come from certain, certain industries more, more heavily represented than others. They're in New York City, so there were a lot of people from uh, the finance-related industries. There were a lot of people from big pharma, because so many of the pharmaceutical multinationals had headquarters in that area. There were a good number of people from the big consulting firms of the world. Um, there were some high tech. So because certain industries were more heavily represented, the kinds of stories they told got repetitious really quickly. Um, the other thing is if you think about the kinds of people who were getting an MBA at, that, uh, at least at that time, they tended to have three, or five, five, three to five years of work experience already. So you know, it was interesting that I could probably count on one hand the number of people who said I was never asked to do something that conflicted with my values. So that was pretty interesting. They all had a story to tell. So they, because they all had stories to tell and because certain industries were more heavily represented, the kinds of stories they told got repetitious really quickly. So they talked about things like, 
I was uh, pressured to um, inflate or deflate my billable hours in a way that didn't correspond with the work I was doing in order to increase revenue for my employer. Or I was encouraged to tamper with and adjust the equations of the benchmarks, the analytics I used, to evaluate the relative attractiveness or lack of attractiveness of a particular financial transaction in order to encourage our clients to take actions that would maximize revenue for our firm. Or I was encouraged to exaggerate the capabilities of a product, a new piece of software or a new pharmaceutical product, beyond what our data could actually support in order to maximize sales revenues. And then there were always issues around corruption, uh, pressures to pay bribes or facilitating payments in order to gain access to certain markets or to be competitive in certain bids for new work. And then there were always the ubiquitous human resource issues, issues around harassment and hiring and firing and discrimination. So because of, you know, the, the stories got repetitious really quickly, but their responses to them differed. And the responses fell into several recognizable buckets. It was very interesting. The first bucket, the largest bucket, a little less than half of them said, yes, I had a conflict. And it bothered me. It didn't just roll off my back. It wasn't that I didn't care about it. But I really didn't think I had any options. So I just sucked it up and did what they told me to do. That was the largest group. And then there was a small group who said, yes, I had this conflict. It bothered me so much I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I also didn't think I had any real choice. So these people removed themselves from the situation. So maybe they got themselves transferred to a different work group, a different manager, and a few of them even quit their jobs. But this was a small group. Now the remainder of the whole group, so now we're talking about a third of them, said, yeah, I had a values conflict, and I, I tried to do something about it. <laughs> and the small group of those folks said, I tried and I failed. But about a quarter of the whole group said, I tried, and by my lights, I was successful. So we thought, well, <laughs> What's the difference? You know, the, these are all people who got into Columbia. You know, they've got some level of, of intelligence, competence, experience. They're talking about the same companies. They're talking about the same industries. They're talking about the same kinds of pressures. And yet, some of them are able to do this, and others do not. So we thought, it's not really empirical data. It was self-reporting. But from a teaching perspective, a development perspective, a training perspective, we thought it might be suggestive. So we brought a researcher in to look at all these stories and to kind of slice and dice them and to see are there any generalizations we can make from this data. So we did that. And in the end, we couldn't say that one group of people were more morally troubled than the other group. Because by definition, we let them define the issue. It wasn't like I gave them a scenario and it mattered to you, but it didn't matter to you. They identified the issue that was a values conflict for them. And it wasn't you know, uh, that one group was more organizationally sophisticated or politically savvy than the other group. Because some of the people who were effective at acting on their values were, in fact, very, very clever and had these ingenious win-wins. But some of them were really kind of clumsy and even naive in the way they did it. So that wasn't the big difference. So in the end, the only thing we could really say is that the people who were able to do this effectively at some point said something outside of their own heads 
And it might have started by talking to a spouse or a partner or a friend, but eventually it found its way into the organization and it changed the trajectory of things. So I thought, well, you know, I'm a little disappointed with that. <laughs> I'm not sure what you do with that. I, I kind of went back to my crisis of faith. I was, you know, discouraged. But then I remembered some research that I had seen years earlier when I was still at Harvard. And it was two different studies by two different scholars, Douglas Haneke and Perry London. And independently, both of these guys decided they wanted to study people who had acted with great conviction in times of really high stakes. And so independently, they both said, we're going to do qualitative research. We're going to do in-depth interviews with people, the people who are often referred to as rescuers from World War II. So these are people who put their lives at stake to help save others who were endangered during the Holocaust. So both of these scholars found populations of these people and did these in-depth interviews. And they tried to identify, did these people have any common family background, personal experience, education, religion, you know, something that led them to be able to act that way when so many others did not. And, you know, they came up with a series of things. I don't remember most of them. But there was one thing that they, that they found that resonated with me, with me when I first read these studies, probably because I was an educator. And it came back to me now as I looked at these stories from the Columbia students. And it was this. They said that the people who had acted with this kind of conviction in these high-risk situations all reported that at an earlier point in their lives, usually as a young adult, they'd had the experience with someone more senior to them. So a boss, a mentor, a teacher, even a parent, they'd had the experience of rehearsing out loud, what would you do if? And then various kinds of moral conflicts. So they'd had this literal experience of prescripting and rehearsal. Um, of course, they couldn't have anticipated the Holocaust, but there was both a cognitive and uh, an emotional or behavioral component to this. So at the cognitive level, they had defined the values that mattered to them, and they put words to them in articulation, a script. But at the behavioral level, they'd had the experience of literally voicing these values out loud to someone more senior to them who stood in as proxy for the kind of person they might need to talk to in the actual circumstances. So I thought, well, this is kind of interesting, this idea of rehearsal, prescripting. So I thought maybe we should do some more exploration. So we did two kinds of exploration. The first thing is that we just gathered more stories. We had all those stories from the Columbia students, but we did interviews with other people, people who were right out of school all the way up to executives in, in major corporations. And we asked them that same question. Tell us about a time when you had a values conflict and how you handled it. So we gathered lots and lots of stories. But then we also looked at the scholarship. Now, this was about 10 years ago, and there was starting to be a lot of research in a number of different disciplines that suggested that if you want to impact people's behavior, that rehearsal, prescripting, peer coaching, literally practice, is a very effective strategy. There's even more of this research now. So you've probably seen in the field of psychology some of the research around habit formation. There's also a school of thought in psychology. They, they, they're the research they do is often described as the study of positive deviance. So these are people who deviate from the norm, but in a positive direction. 
they have a nice way of phrasing it. This is their phrase, not mine. They say, if you want to have an impact on people's behavior, rather than asking them to think their way into a different way of acting, it's more effective to ask them to act their way into a different way of thinking. So that was sort of provocative. Then in the field of uh, cognitive neurosciences, it's not my field, but I spoke to folks who were um, uh, very well versed in the field. And there was a lot of research. I'm sure you've read some of the stuff around brain plasticity and around creating new neural pathways through habit, through repetition. Antonio Damasio has done a lot of this research. But the research I want to tell you about, because I think it's, it's most tangible and it helps me remember it, comes from the field of kinesthetics or the study of physical movement. Um, so back in the day when I was at Harvard Business School, I decided to take a self-defense class. Now I had never in my life felt the need to take a self-defense class until I went to work at Harvard Business School. <laughs> Maybe it's connected. Anyways, I looked around Boston and there were a lot of these courses and they all teach pretty much the same thing. Um, fist to bridge of nose and heel to instep and knee to groin and they have you practice these moves in the air. And the idea is now if anyone ever attacks me, I know what to do, right? But there was one class that was different. It was called model mugging. And it was a developmental model. So they would still have you practice all these moves in the air. But then once you knew them, they'd bring in a gentleman in a padded suit like the Michelin man. And they would line us all up. And we would take turns getting attacked full force by this guy. And then we could use these moves on him full force because he was protected. And in the beginning, it was kind of ludicrous because you just waited your turn to get attacked. But as the class went on, week after week, I'd be talking to you. And he might come and grab me. I never knew when. I never knew what hold he was going to use. So it was utterly nerve wracking. <laughs> but they explained to us. And those of you who are athletes will be familiar with this. They explained to us that this was based on this research, um, specific state muscle memory. So the idea is if you rehearse something in the same physiological and emotional and cognitive state that you will be in when you need to use it, that even if you freeze in the moment, your body remembers. So the tennis pro practices her serve over and over. So that when she goes to tournament and she's under all that stress, her body will automatically assume the proper form. So one day, I'm in this class and I'm laying on my back on the floor, having failed to protect myself. And I was looking at the ceiling and thinking, gee, you know, could you create a kind of moral muscle memory? In other words, could you create a default to voice, but not just to speaking up? Because what I found from interviewing all these people is that the people who've acted on their values effectively, it was rarely a matter of shaking their fist and stamping their foot and speaking truth to power. It was much more strategic, much more tactical, much more organizationally sophisticated. And so I thought, could you create a kind of default to informed voice? So that was kind of the insight, this idea of rehearsal, practice, pre-scripting peer coaching, action planning. So I sort of thought, well, what do we do now when we try and prepare people for ethical action? I was looking at business schools, but I've seen the same thing now 
since then, as I've worked with companies, as I've worked with law and medicine and nursing, etc. And I got a little depressed again, <laughs> because what we typically do is two things. We teach what we call awareness, which means we're going to expose you to a lot of scenarios so you'll recognize, you'll be aware of the kinds of values conflicts you might encounter. And we teach analysis, which means we're going to teach the various models of reasoning um, and the relevant regulations, rules, norms, policies, value statements, so that you will be able to look at a scenario and think rigorously and consistently about, is this over the line or not? But <laughs> this was a little troubling, because awareness building, is, it's necessary, of course, but it's not sufficient. Because a lot of the scenarios I mentioned to you at the beginning of my remarks, there were a lot of people who knew something was wrong. They were aware. They just didn't think they had any options. And analysis also is necessary, important, because there's a lot of complicated issues that aren't uh, uh, immediately apparent. But again, it's not sufficient, because if you think about <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story. It illustrates why it's not sufficient. I interviewed this guy. I told you I interviewed a bunch of people. I interviewed a CEO an entrepreneur, very successful in the US. He had a consumer products firm, privately held. A lot of people said, go talk to him. He's very thoughtful about values and organizations. So I interviewed this guy, and he told me this story. He said that he had recently had a young man in his office. He was interviewing him for a, a high potential, an important job in his organization. And this guy had just recently gotten his MBA from a leading business school in the US. And so the CEO asked him, he said, did you take uh, an ethics class in your business school? And the guy said, well, of course, it was required. <laughs> so the CEO said, well, what did you learn? And he said, well, I learned all the models of ethical reasoning, utilitarianism, deontology, virtue ethics. And then I learned that whenever you encounter a values conflict, you decide what you want to do. And then you select the model of ethical reasoning that will best support what you want to do. <laughs> now, the CEO who's telling this story was kind of smirking at me. He was kind of yanking my chain, right? Because I was the ethics lady. Um, but you know, there's a certain amount of truth to this, right? Um, these models of ethical reasoning, by design, conflict. That's why they're useful. Because what you see from a duty-based perspective, you might miss from a consequentialist perspective. So they don't tell you what's right. They just help you think clearly. And then once you know what you think is right, they certainly don't tell you how to get it done. So done poorly, the way we were doing ethics education was kind of a schooling for sophistry. We were teaching people to be able to rationalize anything. That wasn't the intent, but unfortunately, that's what people were rehearsing. That's what they were prescripting. So I thought, well, we do awareness, we do analysis. We need to add the third A, or action. We need a pedagogy, a way of developing people for values-driven and ethical leadership. So back when I was at Harvard, I used to run their case writing program. I'm sure many of you have seen typical case studies. You know, they're usually about 10 pages long, and they feature the senior executive. And at the end of the case, he looks out the window and says, what should I do? And then people discuss this. So I decided, well, we want to use cases, but we need a different kind of case. So what we did is we, we created what we called the giving voice to values or the GVV thought experiment. So our cases are very short. They're often just a paragraph. Sometimes they're a few pages. They feature people at every level in the organization because people start encountering these issues right away. 
It doesn't wait till your CEO. But the big difference is they're what we call post-decision making. So our cases end with a protagonist who's already decided what the right thing to do is. And the discussion is how could they get it done effectively? What would they need to say and do? What will the pushback be? Then what will they say? And we teach people different skills for reframing problems. And we look at the research about how people make decisions around ethical conflicts. Interestingly, interestingly what, what we've learned from recent research is that people don't look at a scenario and then take a step back and say, well, let's see, Aristotle would say this, John, Kant would, John Rawls would say this, Immanuel Kant would say that. They don't do that kind of intellectual reasoning and then act. People tend to act emotionally immediately. And then they rationalize post hoc why it was the right thing to do or why it was the only thing they could do. And so we realized that that kind of education is not really helping people. That's not how they make ethical decisions. So what we wanted to do was to give them the chance to literally rehearse pre-script, make this kind of muscle memory. Um, and what we're finding from the research is that once people actually feel like they have more strategies available to them, they recognize ethical issues that they would not have seen otherwise. They recognize those issues rather than acting emotionally and rationalizing post hoc. So we're trying to rewire that part of our brains. So it's all based on this kind of model where we kind of say, look, our idea of how this works is that you're working along, you've got your head down, you're doing your job, and something happens. You see something that you think is wrong, you observe something, someone comes to you and asks you to do something, your boss tells you to do something, a friend asks you to do something, and you get that, that moment where you feel like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 I don't know what to do. And so what we usually think is that people just kind of, it's like a deer in headlight moment, you just sort of act, and then you go on to get back to work, right? And you rationalize post hoc. So what our model is that we're spreading out the time between that moment when you get your feel, the feeling in your gut that something's dodgy, and the moment when you think, you know, um, we call them preemptive rationalizations rush in. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's not really wrong. Maybe I don't have all the information. Maybe it's wrong, but it's really not my responsibility. Maybe I'll just make it worse. We want to spread out the time between the moment you get that feeling that something's wrong and the moment when all these preemptive rationalizations rush in. Spread that out and create a kind of safe space, a sort of laboratory to ask what if I was going to act um, on my values here? How might I get that done? And so what we're trying to do is not ask people what would you do? Because if you ask them what would you do, the, all the defensive reasoning kicks in and people talk about how it's, it's not wrong or I don't have a choice. Instead, we just ask what if you were going to do this? How might you get it done? So now the way you show you're smart and sophisticated is by showing thinking creatively. We're trying to shift this from a, an ethical um, sort of defining moment, you know, this moral test of character, into more of a mere problem solving, action planning, prescripting. We want you to use all the skills you already have and that you apply every day in your jobs to ethical issues, to values conflicts. Because typically, when we encounter these values issues, we almost dumb ourselves down. We think that they're these tests of, mo of, of moral character, of my identity. 
and we kind of freeze. <laughs> and so what we wanted to do is get people to be able to tap into all of those other skills, communication skills, negotiation skills, power and influence. So that's really what we're trying to do there. So that's basically the GVV thought experiment. We created hundreds of pieces of material. We made them available for free. People started piloting them. They're being used on all seven continents now in all different places, as I've said. You probably can figure out, though, I'm going to just wrap up here. You probably figured out it's, it's just a reframe. Instead of asking what's right, we ask how do you get the right thing done. And it's based on three flips. We've reversed what it is we're talking about when we talk about ethics. We've reversed who we're talking to and how we're having the conversation. So in terms of what it is we're talking about, instead of talking about the so-called gray issues, the ethical dilemmas, we talk about the more clear-cut issues. What people will say, you know, it's just a clear right-wrong issue. It's easy. But the fact is, just because many of us think it's easy doesn't mean we think we can get it done. And if you only focus on the ethical dilemmas, you never get past the discussion about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. So we, we go to those clear-cut issues, right-wrong issues, but issues that are still hard to do, and we focus on action. The second flip is who we think we're talking to. Used to be I'd go into an organization and they'd say, you know, most of the people here are good people. We just have a few bad apples. <laughs> but, but we think of our audience differently. We think of the people in the organization as a bell curve. Where on one tail end of the bell curve are the folks who would self-identify as opportunists. People who would say, I will do whatever is in my self-interest, regardless of value. Now, nobody falls into one of these categories all the time, but these are people who say, that's my primary motivation. And at the other tail end of the bell curve are the folks who would self-identify as idealists, who say, I would always do what I think is right, regardless of the impact on my material self-interest. What we premise is that the majority of us fall under the bell. I put myself there. And we call them pragmatists. And we define pragmatists as people who would say, I would like to act on my values, as long as it doesn't put me at a systematic disadvantage. Now, that's not the same as saying, as long as I know I'll succeed. It's not the same as saying, as long as I know I'll never pay a price. It simply means I think I have a shot. So if you define your audience that way, I, think, I don't think I have the power to change the opportunists. I think they'll always be with us. And I'm not so worried about the idealists, except I want them to be more skillful. But we're really focusing on the pragmatists. And we're saying, we want to give you the scripts. We want to give you the skills. We want to give you the positive examples. We want to give you the literal practice, rehearsal, pre-scripting, peer coaching, to be who you already want to be at your best. We're not trying to change you. We're trying to empower you. Because when I talk to people about times when they acted on their values, and I ask them, why didn't you when you didn't, they almost always said, because I didn't think I had a choice. So what GVV is about is about helping people realize they have more choices. And then the final flip is, how we do all this, and I already explained that. We focus not on asking what's right, but on asking how do you get the right thing done. So that's GVV in a nutshell. Most of the material is available for free online, givingvoicetovalues.org. Feel free to download anything you like. I'm going to stop, and I'd love to have a conversation with folks. So thank you for letting me share this story. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store 
and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au